Our next speaker is an old Medicine on Box friend, uh, a, a writer, a BBC producer, and an avid bird watcher. And we're really lucky, he'll tell you the story, I'm sure, and glad to have Tim D here today. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Um, I need to start. I gather there's a few health people in the audience. Um, is there anybody from urology? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, thanks to the NHS that I'm here. The story, my story today begins and ends in a hospital, in fact. Um, two days ago, Mr. Timoney took a stent out and some kidney stones um, in North Bristol Southmead Hospital. Uh, three months ago, Mr. Kuparis put the stent in, didn't take the stones out. Um, so I've got to thank them for getting me on the road so easily, so quickly, so beautifully. Um, well, it took a long time to get there in the middle. Um, and that's, in some ways, one of my themes today is, um, is how is it that first you're a child and then you're 50? <laughs> it happens so fast. Um, uh, and I'm working... Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a writer as well as a radio producer, and I'm working on a book about the spring, uh, about the season, the spring. Um, uh, it's it's passing about really the, the passing of time, and I owe a debt here to Denise Riley, who was speaking so fantastically earlier today. I'm afraid some of the same words, the T word, the time word, is going to come up in what I'm going to say too. But it's, this is a book about the passing of time, the passing of time and the sharing of time about the spring. I mean, my current concern, of course, is, is the passing of kidney stones. Um, but I think I've got over that. Um, so this is what I'm wanting to talk about today. Living, trying to live in common time, to keep common time, and particularly thinking about doing this uh, um, in terms of following a season, following how it might be possible to follow the season through, through the year. Spring in the Northern Hemisphere, where we are, arrives and moves north through Europe from the Mediterranean to the North Cape at about three and a half to four miles an hour. That's walking speed, and it takes six months. It's pretty much the same temperature in northern Norway in late June as it is in uh, northern Morocco in late December. I'm just going to put my water down. So the same temperature across six months, and it moves then that temperature moves and the season with it at walking pace. And if it moves at walking pace, it ought to be possible to walk with it, to walk the European spring for half of the year. And I've tried to do that uh, in this project that I'm working on at the moment, both literally and imaginatively, to keep pace with the best season for me. It is the best season. I'd like to live in May every month, if that were possible, uh, to ride that month's breaking green wave as it moves north through Europe. Um, and um, whilst thinking at the same time not only what it means to me that spring, this spring, but what it's meant to others and what it might still mean to all of us, how it has been told and how it tells. And why does this necessary business of the putting forth of leaves and the singing of assertive songs move us so much? Why did it and why does it still? It all springs, if you pardon the pun, from the tilt of the earth a wrongness of sorts, a happy accident or errancy that makes green life possible for only part of each year at the top and the bottom of our globe. Our planet's angle relative to the fall of light from the sun, which is what makes the seasons. If we were square onto our star, we'd all be living in the seasonless tropics 
like the sweating cummerbunds that swaddles the equator, where the light comes evenly and always, where day length and temperature barely alters through the year. So it's the tilt at the top that gives us winter, where the sun struggles to strike the north and life must leave until light, warmth, and greenness are possible once more. And the possible reoccupation of our latitudes is, in a sense, what spring means. Um, as part of this book, I met a fantastic guy, an, an archaeologist working in, in um, Aarhus in Denmark. Excuse me a second. I blame the stones. Um, at our, at working in Aarhus, working on the first occupants of the post-Ice Age uh, Denmark, the Hamburgian people, who came following reindeer north through Europe as it got colder for the reindeer, uh, as it got warmer for the reindeer, warm enough for people to follow the reindeer. Uh, he reckons there were about um, 20 people doing that 15,000 years ago, the first occupants of Denmark. 20 people went after reindeer after at the end of the last ice age. You had to think about that. He knows there's 20 because there's only two sites where the, he's found evidence of these people moving in after the ice. And he's found flints that are chipped in the same way as only one person could have chipped in two sites separately, separated by about 40 kilometers. So the thought of 40 people recolonizing, 40 people, in a, if you like, making their own, making spring for our species in Europe 15,000 years ago. So uh, that's one of the sorts of things that's really switched me on in this project that I've been doing at the moment. The other principal one is that I'm, I'm a bird man. Um, I've been a bird watcher for 50 years. Seasonal change for bird watchers is incredibly important. Um, one of the first things I started writing down as a child bird watcher was what I used to call my first of the year list, where you record the first date that you hear a chiff chaff, and then a wheat ear, and then a sand martin, a swallow, swift, and so forth, and so on. The first of the year date, incredibly important, and each year knowing that you around about the 21st of March, you would hear a chiff chaff. That's amazingly important to, to bird people. And, and continues to be important to me. So, but two things tr nearer to home triggered um, really what I'm, what I'm writing about, uh, as well as being a bird person. Um, this thought, a great line from Bob Dylan, and it happens that we notice the spring more sharply when we have fewer of them to expect. Keats, the poet, knew this and wanted, knowing that he was soon to die, to see the ordinary flowers of the spring again. Who doesn't? My children are in their 20s and my parents are in their 80s. My family has had all sorts of openings and closings these last few years, and somewhere between them, I am stalled. Looking back, looking forward, somewhere in the middle, I began to fall apart, and the hearing aid in one ear, the golden teeth, the reading glasses, the stones, uh, uh, and I've um, reacted by trying to hang something like myself together, among other things, taking up running and things like that to stave off all ills. And every spring, I think, underlines this, that, that we only, we have one spring of our own, although we hope to live through many. But it's that, that mix, that strange meeting that, you know, we grow old, but even but the earth renews itself. That, that, that's, a, that's a great driver for things. I think it's true, maybe someone here can contradict me perhaps, but um, I think it's true that most people who choose to kill themselves, or more people kill themselves in the spring than at any other season of the year. I think because, um, their mood fails to match the world's mood at that time. So what I've done became essential to me in the space of a few months within the spring when I saw my adult sons, uh, now in their 20s, break up um, a street fight in, in southern France with an energy and in a manner that I had never had. And where my sister and I had to advance on my parents, on our parents to take control 
of their increasingly housebound chaos, a state I'm probably heading towards myself. So there was a moment, much of my life at the moment happens on dumps. I'm also writing a book about gulls and men watching gulls on rubbish dumps, but um, I seem to spend a lot of my time on, on dumps. And, and there was an incident where I went, my parents foolishly live in Minehead, uh, and I'd been summoned to change light bulbs and do things that people can't do when they're 80. Uh, and uh, one, the highlight of the day was a trip to the dump, except that when we got to the dump, what I saw was my father falling into one of the bins uh, <laughs> in order to try to rescue the yogurt pot, which I'd thrown into the bin, thinking we could be spare that yogurt pot now. A recycling bin, but nonetheless, uh, but he thought, no, there was still some future use in it. So um, <laughs> there I was somehow in the middle, between this, on a passage between one and the other, between my children being busy born and my parents busy dying and me in the middle. Uh, and this feeling of being somehow, sometimes in time, that we all share this feeling, as Denise was saying, I think, as well. We all share this feeling of being in time, sometimes in time and sometimes out of time, out of joint. And I wanted to listen to that. Uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful poem uh, by an American poet called Donald Schwartz, which has this as a refrain, time is the fire in which we burn. Uh, and that, that's, the, that's the couplet he, he repeats. Um, so what I'm writing then is a book about the spring and all my springs, um, about my time and, and if you like, the, the world's time, lifetime. And it comes after two other books, and this isn't a plug really, it's just hoping to place what I'm trying to say today. Uh, the first was called The Running Sky, and is about, all my books are about birds really, but this, this, was, this, was, this was particularly about birds and about the air. It was a kind of love song to birds who live in the air uh, so superbly that make it their home and that show us better than anything a place that we cannot go. The second book was called Four Fields and was about what I think of as a shared place where we're all headed, the earth. Uh, and now I'm writing this thing about time, what gets us between, if you like, the earth and the air and back again to the earth again. So to try to keep step with the season, to keep common time, an almanac, um, and I, this book is, and what I'm saying here is made out of a journey. It's all, it's all mapped, if you like, a journey. A journey that took in all sorts of things and is continuing to take in things. Uh, this is in Jutland in, in Denmark, the same place I saw my guy with the reindeer. Uh, a bonfire at midsummer. They sing these incredibly maudlin Danish songs because um, it's raining anyway, although it's midsummer. Um, but a journey that included this, uh, uh, the end of spring, this is the last day of spring, the 21st or so of June, uh, the last day of spring, which we also call Midsummer. Uh, and I, I wrote a passage about my intentions that I'll read to you, if that's okay, uh, that is not about Denmark, it's, um, it's actually about the, about the M5. It happened to me between Bristol and Cheltenham. Uh, on the first day of spring. So this is, this is the end of spring, the 21st of, this, of June. This is the 21st of March in, uh, between Gloucestershire and Worcestershire. Uh, there are occasions on some motorway drives when you come to and realize that you are alone in a run of the road. Much lies behind you, much ahead, all the cars and lorries of everywhere. But for a while, for a mile, you travel on your own, having slipped between everyone else and found some place for a few hundred yards or so, for a minute or two. You're held in time and feel it. Unbidden comes the thought that if you could keep things like this, you would, allowing everything to move as it must and traveling yourself with it as you ought, but being able to go with the flow, unencumbered and in a stream of something that feels safe, never catching up, 
never being caught, like birds in a flock. At moments like this, you notice time as otherwise dangerous, as otherwise contagious and remorseless. And you notice this also because you know, even as you become aware of it, that you'll not be able to hold on to the sensation that you are now enjoying of a serene fall, unbruised and elastic. Those gaps ahead of you and behind you are not yours to own or master. Even now, you're gaining on the cars in front while others are hurrying on you from behind. But just for a few moments more, the passage of time and your passage through it floods, floods your mind. I'm sure you've all, well, I hope many of you have experienced that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so that's something about my intention. Um, this is what I've tried to do. Here's a map. It's called maps, isn't it, today? Um, every bird watcher grows up with maps like this that mark and track the flow of birds from south to north, north to south. Mine is an idiot attempt scratched with my own intended travels, my arrows of desire. Birds couldn't draw it any better, but my scribble also shows what is written into their lives in ways that even as we begin to understand them, we still struggle to fathom. How is it that a swallow with a brain the size of a lentil and wings the length of a pencil can get from a sewage works at Cape Town in December to a barn north of the Arctic Circle in June. Knowing that they do, is it any wonder that given the chance we would try to follow them? Our species once moved with the sun as swallows do. I'd like to try to do the same for real. What's this all about then really, this idea of moving north? An isotherm is a line on a map that connects points where temperature is shared the 10 degree centigrade isotherm is the pedal for what I'm talking about. At, some, at that temperature, 10 degrees centigrade, vegetation, grass especially, begins to green up to get some bite. And at the same temperature, small flying insects appear. That first warmth after the northern winter makes a green room for all of us, and life begins to move once more. If Europe was flat, the isotherm would advance northwards at that steady walking pace I was talking about. I could set off at dawn from a place where the temperature was 10 and walk north for eight hours, and I'd carry that temperature with me. And as I did, I would walk in step with a breaking green wave, a wave that will break northwards for half a year, every year. It's not quite like that, of course. There are inclines and mountains and warm edges and cold interiors, and the weather can go backwards. And now we've found ways that we ourselves are capable of hurrying on the season in places and skewing it in others. You've got, we've got to be climate changers, and it's not a good thing. There are things to say about this, and yet no season ever has run its course straight. The Earth doesn't do clockwork. And all this complicates my story. It makes it, I hope, more interesting. So it's an idea from science, in a way, this idea of them plotting the 10 degrees isotherm. It's also an idea I stole from a friend of mine who's a wonderful poet. I won't read this. You need to hear him read it. He's got the most posthumous voice. Uh, do anybody know Robin Robinson's Abedonian miserable bugger? The <laughs> uh, fantastic guy, publisher at Cape, um, a wonderful poet. I'll just leave that on there for you to look at. Uh, so that's, that's another idea about when He says two, two miles an hour, I say 3.5. We'll fight it out later on. Um, so a, a combination of this. I've done some of this myself, and then moving from the winter solstice uh, in the far south of Africa to the summer in the far north of Norway, the shortest day to the longest day, from the year's midnight on the 21st of December to total light at the end of the June. 
I followed in a single half year, a single journey, then north from Africa to the edge of the Arctic. But as I've traveled, I've also drawn on and thought about other springs and other places that loop in time. Phenology, the, the study of seasonal phenomena, is never more of a common concern than in the spring. No other season is so commonly marked, so nationally noticed. The first snowdrop, the first cuckoo, the first catkins, the first swallow, so forth, cherry blossom, lawn cutting, butterfly, leaf burst, haying, bluebell haze, swift scream. This delicious and ancient story of greening, renewal, the earth's saladed days is flown over us or sung through by birds, especially migrant birds, which is my big thing, making the same journey as I am, as I've been trying to do. Birds are still for me, after several books and 50 years of looking, the best means I've found to uh, know and feel how life other than ours goes on our shared planet. This is the chief of my cast of characters, uh, my favorite bird. It's called a red start. Uh, it has all I need in a bird. That's a male. Everyone I see has a bloom on it from the times when we're not together. It migrates. It breeds among the freshest, greenest leaves in the sweetest oak valleys of Western Britain. It winters in Africa across the Sahel, just below the Sahara, in that ideal landscape of gently undulating grassland with scattered trees. It is shaped like a small and perfect thrush. It perches with an intense, upright alertness. Its song is thin but fine and beautifully apt, like the first glances of sun after rain. Both male and female are exquisite to look at. Males have a slate gray back and wings, a warm red breast, a deep black throat, and a brilliant narrow white fringe running around their faces above their eyes. Females are lovely, soft brown. Also, is in some ways to me now, as I get older and more something, beauti more beautiful than the males. I don't know what that means about me. But anyway, they're still lovely. Both of them are lovely. But best of all, they have this warm orange-red tail. And it's a tail that I, I would like to show you a film, but I can't. But a tail that shimmers continuously. It moves behind them like this. Nobody really knows why they do this. The moving tail and its redness is commonly the thing that first draws your attention. The blurry red seeming to hang in the air in front of you as if it has independent life. It's what Gerard Manley Hopkins would have called the instress of the Red Start, what a birder would call its, its jizz, its sort of signature, its beautiful to me. And even more magical to me is the fact that what it does, this tail shake, is an action that takes place behind it. It can't actually see it, and yet it's what it does all the time. It's what is, it's doing, it's announcing itself without knowing that it is announcing itself, which seems to me a beautiful way to try to live in the world. Anyway. When you see it, you never want to stop looking. Um, that was a picture my son did when he was seven or something like that, knowing that I loved Red Starts. He's now 25. Um, <laughs> so he knew, he knew that what Red Starts meant to me. It was, the, the Red Start was also known to Aristotle for its red tail. It was known to John Clare, the poet. He called them fire tails for its red tail. It was known to the Anglo-Saxons, the, the, the name Red Start Sturtis means tail in Anglo-Saxon, I think. It was known uh, that it, as it, for its red tail uh, to science. Linnaeus called them phenicarus, which means red tail in, in, in Greek. Uh, in fact, the, the current scientific name for them is phenicarus, phenicarus, red tail, red tail, which suggests to me that lovely shimmer. Um, anyway, uh, these are my uh, children as they were. You can see, uh, I haven't forced them into anything like birds. 
Uh, that's Lucian, dressed as a secretary bird on the left. Um, I have to say, he's just graduated from SOAS in, in anthropology, and that's uh, Dominic, it's a guest star, I think it is in Sicily, watching a, a spring golden oriole, currently a year four medical student in uh, Queen Mary in London. Um, I first saw Red Starts in the 19, early 1970s in Mid Wales um, in a beautiful hanging green oak forest. I last saw them this year around midsummer in uh, the absolute tip of northern Norway near Tromso. Um, I just checked, it's, it's minus one in Tromso tonight. Um, the sun rose at half past 10 this morning there and set at half past noon. They've had two hours of daylight and it was overcast uh, and it's dark now. So this is important in a way. This is important for this bird. I mean, this is why every red start that was in Tromso and everywhere else in Europe isn't there now, isn't here now. And let's think about this for a minute. All of them, it's estimated that there are between 6 and 16 million pairs of red starts breeding across Europe deep into Russia. Uh, they've all gone now. All have now gone. Think about that. They were all not where they were six months ago. And then think that when we see them next year, or when I see them, you see them too, I hope, uh, they will all have been in Africa. <laughs> uh, likewise, every swallow that we see next year that we're anticipating already in late March, early April, will have been in Africa. That's where they are now. Um, all of them will have crossed the Sahara, uh, and all those swallows are there now in Zambia, in South Africa, in Namibia, in Mozambique, in, Mozamb in Madagascar, like so many roof tiles with cutthroats fly in the skies. Um, so I wanted to think about that, and I wanted to journey with those birds in some ways as far as I could. I began at the bottom then of, of, the, of, of, the shared, of this shared world, right down at the bottom of, of, of Cape Point in, in, near Cape Town in South Africa, partly because I'm very happily married to a South African, um, <laughs> uh, and we very luckily have a house that almost, I think I have said it's the last house but one before Antarctica. It quite possibly is. It's right on the edge of the, of the reserve at the bottom of Cape Point. It's a place, though, where we see swallows um, in the, in the wintertime, in, in what is, to me, their winter, but it's to them, of course, who knows what it is. It's actually midsummer in South Africa uh, when, on 21st of December when I've seen swallows flying past our house. A month later, uh, this year, uh, we, we went north from Cape Town into the, into the Sahel to see this bird, amongst others in February, in the, uh, the Sahel being this the, the fantastic thicket of, of, of slightly less arid green below the Sahara that runs from all the way from West Africa all the way through to uh, the Horn of Africa, uh, where lots of our birds spend their winters. So the Sahel is the place where you, go, you might go to see the other half of the lives of red stars, um, which is what I was happy and lucky enough to be able to do. And seeing them there it was still an, nonetheless a, a mind stretcher as it, as it was for watching swallows in, in South Africa in the middle of the winter, a mind stretcher because they were living, they were at home there. Uh, and yet I've always think of them as home when I, well, I think of them as being at home when I see them in, in either in Britain or elsewhere in, in Europe. So this weird, this weird uh, hard feeling to work out how to, how to carry that sense of, of, of them, their mobile home with them is, is, is interesting to me. Um, uh, I mean, there are, there are some parallels and common, commonalities here. I mean, from the, the Sahel, we, we, we traveled north into the desert, uh, the Sahara, um, into the sand, towards the Mediterranean, where alongside the seasonal flux of avian life is the historical and continuing passage of our species out of Africa from our very beginnings 
two million years ago to the desperate attempted exoduses of today. In Chad, there are European birds like red starts and swallows heading north across the desert, flying between these camels and their nomadic herdsmen who themselves are walking routes that have been taken seasonally for millennia. Uh, you can also see the same birds flying over the traces of today's more dangerous traffic of people across the dangerous sands towards the still more dangerous sea and the uncertain hospitality of Europe. One of the routes out of Africa takes people from uh, Eritrea, particularly in Ethiopia, uh, along the Sudanese-Chad border north through the desert, very near to where this picture was taken. So red starts come into Europe and they breed all across, as I said, from Spain to Russia. Uh, the other end of that flight then from the Sahelian thicket across the desert is um, either somewhere like this, which is um, the, uh, the hanging woodlands again, this fantastic temperate rainforest of, of, of the western combs of Exmoor. This is um, a place near Horner Water in Exmoor. Uh, I go there every year and I kind of pilgrimage to connect, to reconnect with my red stars, my red stars, they're only mine, that come back uh, into this new fresh leaf burst of green oak and, and beech and so forth. Uh, there's another two birds there, wonderful summer visitors as well, the wood warbler and the pied flycatcher. For some, for some the, the, the end of the journey is even further north. It's in uh, Tromso, where I was this midsummer. And there's a human nomadism there that's interesting just to briefly reflect on for a moment. A transhumance, really, uh, a movement up and down landscapes um, as well as across them. Uh, a seasonal movement that Sami people have with, with reindeer. Um, I spent a little time with some Sami, which means that I spent a little time with reindeer. I mean, they, their lives are very intimately connected. Uh, although in the spring, the reindeer are everywhere, everywhere. This is on a pavement in downtown Tromso. Um, there's a reason for that. Uh, his antlers are growing an inch every day at this time of year in, in June, an inch every day. It's like having a bloody great tree on your head growing an inch every day. Um, it's enough to drive you to a pavement in Tromso, I'm sure. Uh, and that antler shape, though, is, is, un is unique to him. This is, a, this is a bull, uh, but it's the females have them as well, uh, smaller ones. Um, the antler shapes are unique, and, it, and it's a means of um, identifying the, 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 the animal to the Sami. All the, all the reindeer are, are owned, all the Sami claim that all the reindeer are owned by them. Uh, so they have three words. You know, they have 40 words for snow, etc., like everybody else up there. Um, but they have the three different words will, will tell you what, what a reindeer, uh, will describe an individual reindeer to you. Uh, I love this idea that you, you only need three words. And that's, that's, that's describing the shape of the, of, the, of the reindeer's antler. By those three words that, that tell you enough about the antler shape, you will know your individual reindeer. Uh, I like that thought. Um, Anyway, this is, this, is, this, is, this is the sort of place. It's a summer landscape. It's also a, a, a winter landscape. I stayed here. I met my Sami through other friends, and I met, stayed here with, with two friends who are chronobiologists working on uh, the clocks of ptarmigan and of fish, uh, how fish know what they need to know, um, how day length might be computed for a ptarmigan that lives in 24 hours of daylight in the summer and 24 hours of nightlight, darkness in the winter. So well, there was much talk of light and dark when I was with my friends. I had been to the same place in the middle of the winter and it, deliberately to see what it was like then, um, in, to Tromso in the Arctic dark, where the day is squeezed to just a short-lived crack of light at its cold rim and the gray of the sky meets the slate of the sea via brindled mountains of snow and stone 
The sea was frozen where it touched the land, heavy water jellied like old toenails. And in a fjord, killer whales cut between humpback whales. You might have seen, I think, a sequence of this on Blue Planet, the very same place, both um, hunting herring, uh, trading more greys and blacks as they surfaced. And on the shore, white-tailed eagles and winter-white willow grass did the same, the granite severities of one and the snowballs of the others. And then, so think of that, that monochrome black and white world in the winter. And then uh, the other, in six months later, that. Uh, if I could speak Spanish, I'd read that wonderful poem by Lorca to you, Green, I love you, Green, Verde, que te verde, que te quiero verde, whatever, however it goes, but green and light. Uh, and that's, that's the extraordinary thing. There's more, I think there's more solar energy goes into northern Norway uh, in 24 hours of daylight that it gets in the midsummer than ever hits anywhere in the Sahara. I need to work that out before I finish my book, but I think that's the case. Um, one day, when I was up there just now in, in last summer, I, went, I walked back, I walked the season back. You can do this, as I was suggesting earlier, it's not a flat place, the seasons don't work. Uh, assuming everywhere is flat. If you go uphill, then the season goes back because the temperature goes down. So I took in all the seasons on one walk. I took a path uphill, starting in thick birch woodland with this fantastic bracken growth at, at the base of the trees, um, the leaves on the trees closing the canopy above the bracken. And I walked up, effectively back in time, like a film running backwards. Uh, I mean, you can all do this going north up a hill, basically. The leaves pulling back into the trees, uh, furled and cased and twigged so that in places there was snow on the ground still, some leaves, some cases, but uh, mostly as you walk higher on the hillside, there were fewer and fewer green leaves. The whole wood itself feeling like it was lowering into the thin, cold soil. Then there were snow patches, then there were ice banks like great uh, dumped fridges and freezers tipped across the hillside. I flushed a, a great snipe, which is like uh, our common or garden snipe, but greater. Um, it goes off, it looks like a bunch of leaves. It flew off in a fantastic sort of autumnal fluster, uh, leaf mold wrapped around a brick of peat. And there were willow warblers that had come quite possibly from our garden in Cape Town. And they go as far south as that in the winter. And they were singing, but they could feel they looked like they were pinched by the cold. Or their little beaks were opening, and then they were sort of shutting. And they weren't opening so far. And then by the time I got to the top of the hill, there were none of them. Or they were certainly silent, as if the season, the season's song had been snapped and strapped in them. Uh, and then uh, right at the top, it got really bleak and cold. An extraordinary bird with a long-tailed skewer um, coming up through blew through the snow clouds like a stingray on a tropical sea lagoon, a kind of crucifix, a cold bird. Actually, some are visited nonetheless, but a cold bird. Uh, and then right at the top, this is the same walk where the bracken, the bracken began this walk, and this is what was at the top. And then, you know, incredible snow fields um, and cold weather. It was actually snowing whilst I was there for some other time. These lakes looking like cataracts, still frozen. And then an absolute miracle in that landscape there, that very landscape, two singing birds, two spring birds that had come out of Africa, a blue throat and a wheat ear, uh, amazing, fragile, little tiny things, smaller than my hand, uh, singing uh, fabulously, defiantly, heroically to me, um, you know, be, being there because they wanted to be there. They, no one had told them to be there. You know, it was the best place for them because the light was good and the insects were good. And I left that place walking down, the weather got worse, the cloud came down, they were still singing even as the cloud came down over the top of the bloody hill. Uh, they were singing in the cloud, uh, amazing, you know, determined to get on, still, you know, husbanding the light, the little bit of light that was left to them. Uh, the next day, 
uh, and except that's not right because there is no such thing as the next day in, in June in northern Norway because there is no such thing as the gap between one day and the next because the light is continuous. The light is continuous here. The stretch of light, light is the driver for everything, the great motor, uh, and it never goes away. Even on, when it's overcast, it's still, it never gets darker than it, it is there in, in June. Many of you might have seen that. Anyway, I went out the next day egging, um, looking at, at birds' nests, with the two daughters of my, uh, my friends there, Gabby and David. This is Lilu and Valerie, and, um, and, and looking in nest boxes. The Norwegians are very good, friendly to their birds. And we were um, in inspecting, and that's, that's their pipe fly catchers. That's the, one of the tr my holy trinity, the birds that you can see in the Quantox and Exmoor, but uh, which also have come from the Sahel uh, in southern Af in uh, halfway down Africa. Uh, that's, uh, that's a clutch of them ready to go. Um, so they've been there, they've got there, they've eaten their insects, they've drunk that light, and uh, uh, we picked actually one of them up and it, and it flew, <laughs> flew, flew away, terrified. Um, uh, I think it got back into the nest, I promise you. Um, uh, then, so then, then uh, sorry, I lost, lost my pace. So this fantastic hurrying and, and um, uh, amazing pouring of light, amazing hurrying that goes on, and then, um, and it, and, it, and it never stops. That's a female pipe fly catcher. That's probably the agitated mother of the birds we just saw. Uh, and then, uh, then uh, because it never stops, you don't go to sleep at the right time. And, um, and it, you're always thinking about the light and always working with the light, you're working your own clock and your own body with the, with the, with the light. And under, it's kind of miraculously stretched. You seem to be able to live. You might be able to live forever. You know, if it's not going to get dark, why should you ever stop? Um, so I spent those, those midsummer days talking to those chronobiologists about how light drives life, how sunlight makes all of us lighting our stardust from within and without. And whilst we were talking, a red star sang, uh, as they seemed to do to me wonderfully, and it trembled its tail. Uh, and um, that, that's pretty much what it's like. That's the sun never gets lower in that place on the back of their house, up on the hillside, on the fell side. Um, it, the, Birds are going after things because they don't need to stop because it doesn't get dark, so there are moths that are flying, but the moths are flying through the day and through the night. There are crane flies that are always on the wing, and the birds sang as I walked towards them and then stopped as I got close to them. And then as I passed them, they started up again. They slipped away from me, they flew, they sang again, and then trembling along with all the other birds there. One male red start I counted this sang for 22 hours of one day just behind the house that I was staying in. Three cycles of song every minute. 4,000 whilst I sat stunned under the stretched crown of the year. The previous year, I'd been with Claire, my wife, in a second place nearby um, uh, when another did the same alongside a blue throat uh, through the white night and uh, an extraordinarily vicious attack of mosquitoes. Uh, this is the same night that the European referendum was happening. Uh, and both those birds sang on um, under the continuing sky after the results, and yesterday somehow having not ended, whilst today had already long begun. So that's one denouement, in a way, this continuing song, this wonderful balm of that song under that light. Second one, just to finish with, which brings me back to where I started. Um, I came back out of, um, out of that amazing light, this light, uh, from northern Norway. I had two days back in Bristol, then I had an appointment in, um, the neurology department at uh, Southmead Hospital, so different from my current favorite department. Um, I'd been trying to get an appointment for a long time. I'd had in, in, um, 
when I was, we were camping in Chad, I noticed I had a tremor in my right hand. And uh, I got into the appointment with a neurologist at Southmead, and within about 30 seconds, he, t he told me that I had Parkinson's. Um, so I, I'm finishing by telling you that I've got now got a tremor, uh, like my red stars, uh, a kind of signature of myself, if you like, uh, that is somehow caught up in my own ideas about how we live and how our time goes, uh, how we keep time some of the time, and how we are sometimes can feel beside ourselves. In, the, in my case, increasingly, literally, as I tremble my way along beside myself. Um, one of the tests they do, uh, some of you will know this, I'm sure, um, this 30-second diagnosis from the guy at Southmead, uh, they're looking for something called micrographia, you know, the reduction in handwriting size as a symptom of Parkinson's. Uh, he made me write for f uh, five times in, on a piece of paper the first line of an old song, um, which, as he did it, uh, uh, became increasingly, uh, was immediately aware, uh, I, I immediately thought of as a, as a spring song, a song about the spring. Um, so uh, I'm sort of ending this by reminding you also of um, that moment, it's at the end of 2001 Space Odyssey, where Hal, the computer, his sort of gradual deactivation is, is recorded when he has to sing, he sings Daisy, Daisy, me, Daisy, give me an answer do, and it all goes wonky and wrong. So, th so the, the, the neurologist at Southmead made me write this. Uh, that's my, my spring song. Uh, and it was getting smaller and smaller, sure enough. Anyway, that's where I finish. Thanks so much.